everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Super excited to welcome Dr. Anthony Anarino back onto the podcast today. Today, Anthony and I are going to be chatting about hamstring injuries, hamstring strains. So what they are, how we kind of classify and diagnose them, what kind of things you should be looking for, treating with, considering in your return to play process, and so much more. We jam-pack a lot of info into this one, and I think you're going to learn something from this one today. I know I did. Enjoy. Anthony, welcome back to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you again today, man. Thanks for being here. Dan, it's an honor as always to talk to you, and uh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. For people who might not have caught you last time you were on, or maybe they haven't heard of you before, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the amazing things that you've been doing in the world of sports rehab? Yeah, for sure. If you guys haven't listened to the past episode, it was a really cool podcast Dan put together with a, it was a, a basketball roundtable, which was cool. And um, I was part of that as I'm a performance therapist for the Washington Wizards. Uh, so I this will be my third season uh, with the Wizards uh, serving the role of performance therapist. Um, prior to that, I was uh, serving as a PT and clinic director at a clinic called Rehab to Perform. Back then, and still am serving as a lecturer with uh, RGP Academy, which is a con ed company where we uh, teach to PT, AT, strength coaches uh, online and around the U.S., um, doing courses primarily focused on uh, return to play and integrating those uh, kind of, you know, mid to late phases where uh, things get a little, uh, you know, get a little gray between what's performance and what is rehab. And that's really our passion is to kind of uh, help them to, to mesh those lines a little bit and get people integrating and talking better so that uh, athletes have the, the best uh, and most robust course of care to get them back on the field of play. Um, so I'm, I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. I, uh, I grew up there and then I went to, to undergraduate and PT school at University of Dayton uh, prior to moving out to the Maryland area for the job at R2P. And then, like I said, uh, transitioned into uh, into D.C. for my work with the Wizards. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great journey for you, Anthony. And it sounds like you've kind of had a lot of experience in the world of sports rehab from your time with R2P up to your time now with the Wizards. And like you mentioned, you've kind of worked as both a clinician and an educator in that field, which is very unique. And I've noticed that one of your courses, uh, I believe, focuses on the hamstring in particular. And that's always been an area of interest to me because I feel like hamstring injuries are not often fully understood, um, yet they're pretty common in the world of sports and athletics. Um, you know, I've seen multiple in the past year. But like I said, I feel like they're not fully understood. So, you know, if someone is coming to see you for an injury to the hamstrings, what kind of thing might lead that to be injured in the first place? What kind of thing would lead to some kind of hamstring strain or tear of a hamstring? Yeah, first and foremost, as you mentioned, we we have the the course on the hamstring. And really what the impetus for us, us doing that was um, I started working in track and field during my time at Rehab Perform. There's a, a school called the Bullis School in Potomac, Maryland, that had some really, really high level, some of the top high school age sprinters in the country. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to start working with that school. And what I noticed working with track was that these injuries are, are really, really difficult when you start getting to, to high level, really fast, explosive athletes. Um, I think working in the clinic with, you know, soccer players or basketball players and seeing these kind of, you know, here and there hamstring strains, I thought, you know, these things are, are pretty easy. They heal up quick. But when you're, uh, when you're working with, you know, athletes that need to be managing, you know, speed at a hundred percent every time they step on the track and not thinking about this thing and, and where this mechanism is so prominent um, managing these hamstring strains 
became a, a difficult problem to solve and um, something I really leaned into because, uh, you know, we saw a lot of kids dealing with these issues that were recurrent and were things that were getting in the way of them potentially getting college scholarships. So for me, you know, I think the reason I got in this profession was to to help to solve difficult problems and to find processes to to, to help people to, to be their best. So um, it was one of those, I think, big call to actions early in my career that was uh, kind of led to a, a passion for understanding these complex injuries better. Um, so Dan, I believe your question was more surrounded about, you know, what's the mechanism here? So kind of mentioning, you know, track and sprinting, the main mechanism here is, is high velocity sprinting. Um, what we typically see is, um, is sprint related injuries is most prominent. So you'll see these in um, obviously in track and field, you'll see these in soccer, you'll see these in football, um, typically when people are, are, you know, hitting max velocity type movements, um, because we typically see uh, the biceps, biceps femoris long head getting injured in terminal swing. That's most common. Um, so it's really this eccentric action of the muscle, um, this lengthening when we're at you know, our peak hip flexion of the running motion, our peak knee extension, where this muscle is going to be lengthened across two joints um, and having to manage this force and then reproduce uh, a concentric action back into the ground. Uh, so <laughs> that's that vulnerable moment where if we're not prepared for this or we have a mistiming of movement um, or just the, the stress is too much, we end up having, uh, you know, these issues within the muscle. Uh, additionally, on top of that, like we we have to remember that these muscles are also triplanar. So we will see, you know, and we see this in, in a little more in basketball too, is you'll see cut related injuries. You'll see deceleration related injuries in baseball. You'll see, you'll see these a little bit as well. Um, so we get so caught up on the sprint work that we, uh, which, because it is most common, but there are going to be other elements to hamstrings that we need to be to consider. So when going through the treatment process, as we'll sure we're talk, we really do need to consider mechanism and the specific tissue that has been involved to, to be most specific with our, our rehab plan and processes. Right. I love that point, Anthony, as you mentioned, uh, it comes back to how it was injured and what action it was injured in and to kind of give an additional example of that. Um, there's one individual I was working with who actually had a avulsion of the hamstring off of the ischial tuberosity. So more yeah. of a proximal thing, more of a hip focused thing. Uh, in that case. So, you know, I don't recall his exact mechanism of injury right off, but knowing it was at the hip, I would imagine it'd be more of a hip dominant hip extension type thing. Um, when I look at something at the knee, um, you know, there's an individual I worked with who part who um, tore one of his hamstring tendons on both legs. And in that individual, I believe it was more of kind of the rotation based element, kind of like you were mentioning that you see in different sports like baseball or basketball. Um, so for that individual, I'd imagine it's more of the rotational element of the hamstrings, because I think a lot of people forget that the knee has an ability to rotate. It's not, you know, nearly as much as like the shoulder, but the knee can rotate. Um, and then there was another individual I was working with for more of like the strain and less of the like tear or avulsion. And that was much more of the high velocity sprinting type mechanism like you uh, like you outlined there. So when I think about the mechanism, at least for me, I kind of break it down like that. Was it a rotation based? Was it a sprinting or more of like an eccentric muscle action? Or was it more of like a hip extension, hip dominant kind of motion, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think that's a really good actually way to break it down uh, simply into those those different mechanisms. And again, the selective tissue that's going to be um, be affected is going to be you know predicated on on how it was injured. 
Um, and that's really important because I think what happens and mistakes I've certainly made in my past is treating a hamstring strain like a hamstring strain. And really, you got to look at it N equals one here because uh, if you're managing a, you know, oh, this is just typical protocol for hamstring strains, but this was more of, like you said, a rotational base injury, this athlete's going to get back and be like, I, I just don't feel right. So what's what's the mechanics behind this? Did we actually check to see, did you restore tibial rotation? Did you restore hip rotation? Did you restore full access to these things? Have you stressed those triplanar patterns um, and work the muscle in that fashion? Because otherwise uh, you may not restore requisite qualities that, that were needed and were damaged during that initial injury. Likewise, if we're not, you know, with a, with a more proximal issue, if we're not stress, specific stressing that tissue, especially if we're having like a muscle tenderness junction thing and respecting that, there needs to be specific loading mechanisms that need to be done to, to stress that tissue to, to get that to restore. So we need to be pretty targeted with our interventions. Thus, our, our examination and our evaluation of the mechanism needs to be equally specific. Exactly, exactly. If we miss something in our initial exam, then we're likely to miss something in our interventions. So say an individual comes in to see you, Anthony, and you're suspecting a hamstring injury. What kind of questions are you asking or what kind of things do you want to know in addition to the mechanism of injury from them? You want to know, obviously, like you said, you want to know mechanism. Uh, one of the first questions I'm asking is history. I want to know, is this a recurrent issue for them? Is this something that they've had on the contralateral side? Is this something they've been, you know, having hamstring issues that are bouncing around? Um, what's the history there? I want to know other major injuries or issues. Was there a calf issue or a back issue or anything else stemming that may have um, may have been before this that could have led to some aberrant patterning? Or is this a one-off thing that is just a, you know, maybe the athlete wasn't necessarily prepared coming into season? So what point of season was it? What did your training look like leading up to this? Was there a spike in training volume or a spike in play volume? Uh, were you not sprinting at those velocities? Now you've hit that. Were you hitting a point of fatigue? Um, also, like, what were you feeling before the injury happened? Oftentimes you'll get this, yeah, I just felt this weird tightness for a couple of days leading up to it. And I just figured I could, you know, work through it and then boom, it went. So what, what was the scenario that led up to the injury? Um, because understanding their experience within this um, is going to help you with the diagnostic. Additionally, it's going to help you develop a common language for them to understand their sensorium around the injury. Um, so if you're getting into fear avoidance or when you're getting to later stages, you have a communication stream of it. Is that tightness similar to what you were feeling before? Um, you know, what you're feeling now is like with this or, you know, how was that related to what you what you've done in previous times? Um, so developing that understanding, kind of, I think of as the you know ten thousand foot view of what's going on with them. Um, now talking about post injury, things I want to understand is what was their you know pain level at time of injury. Um, if I'm seeing them a few days after, what does those days look like? How's your walking been looking? How's your pain been? Um, what have you been doing? Did you you know what have you been doing recovery wise? Did you ice? Did you did you take medication? Um, were you trying to do any stretches or anything like that? Just to get a, a sense of, you know, when I'm seeing them, what led to their current state that they're in. Um, so other things I want to understand from them too is like how severe did they think it is? So if you look at some of the hamstring literature, I think one of the, the most interesting thing is, is like there's been a lot of money put into hamstring strain rehab because it is one of the largest time loss, thus money costing injuries for a lot of major sports in the world. So it's one of the most researched injuries. And you look through all this stuff because the big question that's going to be asked is like, well, how long am I going to be out? 
So we have all these tests, we have imaging, we have all this stuff to look at. And when you break all this down, the two things that are most predictive of how long it's going to be that you're going to be out is your pain scale at time of injury. And if you pull a calendar out and ask the athlete, hey, point to the date you think you're going to be back. So it's actually self-predicted in the time of time that you think you're going to be out and then clinician estimate. It's, it's very interesting. So um, that's something I typically ask just to get a sense of, of where the athlete thinks they're going to be. Um, I've seen some who have been really accurate and I've seen some who've been really off and we've had to have a conversation about it. So um, it's always interesting to ask that question just to get a sense of how severe they, they think it is. And again, if it's a first injury or a second injury, it's something where um, their brain might calibrate a little bit differently. Um, and then something else to respect in this early stages too is what's been the evolution of this injury over the first seven days. It, I have found from my experience, it's tough to be uh, really accurate diagnostically until around the seven day mark. Um, I've seen athletes who look pretty rough the first couple of days and then by day seven, they're looking great. I've seen some who look really, you know, relatively really good by day three, but at day seven, they look about the same. Um, so we realize it's gonna be a little bit slower process. Other questions I'm asking are, are gonna be surrounding their expectations. I wanna know, you know, what's their expectations of rehab? How soon, or is there something on the calendar that they feel they need to get back to? And then I want to understand logistics of 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 their their rehab process. Um, what are they available to them now? You know, both time wise to be in the clinic and to see to see me. Um, what do they have available to them? You know, outside. And then uh, what do they have available to them as far as as coaching and a level of integration that the clinician can have with whether it be a strength coach or a sport coach to be able to get them back to something that looks like sport as soon as possible. Because with these things, there's oftentimes really easy ways to early integrate, but there seems to be clear set guardrails. And the faster you can integrate things back in, typically the faster and more robust uh, the rehab process can be. Yeah, I love that, Anthony. That's very comprehensive from kind of getting a really good like backstory, almost like painting a picture of what happened, what happened leading up to it, and then where they want to go afterwards. It's almost kind of like you're filling out chapters of the book uh, for the individual in front of you. And you kind of know what their end goal is going to be and when they want to get there by roughly based on the calendar estimate that you mentioned. And then it becomes your job to kind of facilitate a plan to get them from where they are on day one when they see you to um, where they need to be. I also love how you mentioned that things can evolve quickly in the hamstring world. I um, I remember one individual I saw same day that he injured. And at first it was kind of confusing to me. I was trying to piece the, uh, you know, the picture together still. It was funny because this was one of the first ones uh, that I saw right after I'd passed the board exam um, and after about a week, it became a much more clear picture to me at first, um, you know, for this individual, a lot of his symptoms were located along the outside of the knee joint lateral joint line. So at the time I was kind of thinking, you know, Hey, maybe there's some meniscus stuff possible here. Maybe there's LCL, like there's just so much stuff jammed into that uh, you know, lateral area of the knee, posterior lateral corner of the knee, if you want to call it that, where it was kind of difficult to get a differential early on for myself. Um, you know, when someone comes in to you with one of these injuries, Anthony, are there anything, is there anything in particular that you're thinking of from a differential standpoint, whether it be up at the hip, 
down at the knee? Does that change at all based on the rotational versus just a straight sprinting mechanism to you at all? Um, what kind of other diagnoses are you considering? Yeah, for sure. I think if you're getting some of that, you know, that posterior lateral stuff, like, and again, like I want to know mechanism, if it's something where it's, where it's more acute, um, and it has that sprinting mechanism, it's most commonly, there might be other things involved, but it's most commonly going to have some, uh, some, some tissue issue related to a hamstring, whether it be a tendon. Um, if it's something where it's in that posterior lateral corner, you might be thinking, okay, I might be having something more specific to like bicep spam short head or something like that. Um, or something where, you know, maybe I just have a little bit of, uh, of tone in that area and it's locking up knee rotation. So maybe it's not a necessarily, if it's not, maybe it's not necessarily a strain, but it's something where uh, I had a, a, a little overstretched moment, the muscle tightened up and now it's not allowing the knee to, to, to rotate and glide how it needs to. Um, so that's where I think going into, you know, treatment and going to, to certain things might provide you a little bit of access of, oh, I, if I decrease some of this tone, I, I mobilize the knee a little bit. If that goes away, then we're thinking, uh, oh, maybe I'm less concerned about a, a, a serious, you know, tissue issue. Um, especially if I'm not having, you know, any swelling, any heat, any other signs of um, acute inflammatory issue there. Um, other differentials we're looking at are obviously, uh, you know, neurological related um, with the sciatic nerve running back there. A lot of, you know, lumbar issues can can be disguised as hamstring related issues. Um, they can kind of come hand in hand where if I have a um, ridiculous issue, it might lead to, you know, mistiming, misfiring of a hamstring or weakness of a hamstring that can leave it vulnerable to injury. So you always want to clear um, that joint above and understand what's happening neurodynamically, what's happening if there's any lesions in the lumbar spine that might be leaving things uh, vulnerable um, as well. And then when I start getting into uh, if it's more of a chronic issue, I want to start understanding if it's more of a, you know, muscle belly issue or if I'm dealing with more of a tendinous issue or, you know, your tendinopathy is down there can be pretty nasty, whether it be a distal hamstring tendinopathy or proximal hamstring tendinopathy, those can be, those can be pretty tough to manage. Um, the other thing, as far as like, we're just talking about actual, you know, strain, um, the degree of strain might be, you know, something where I might not be tr dealing with actually true muscle fiber disruption. I might be looking at something that's more of like a, like neurofascial strain. Um, so these are these, you know, overstretch of just neurofascial structures that lead to something that might present like a, you know, tissue issue. Um, but they're typically going to correct a little bit faster, a little bit easier and respond a little bit more to initial treatments. So those are the kind of those, like looking back on that now with, it's like, oh, those ones that healed up really quick. Mm, those are probably just these, you know, these neurofascial type issues. Um, other things to think about from differential is um, when someone has had these recurrent in their past, um, oftentimes you may see these, uh, these like minor re-exacerbations or like, like I'll call them like pre-strains where these seem to be, to me, at least the way I make sense of them in my head is more of a, you know, protective muscle spindle response. So I've seen this a lot in, you know, in or time, a few times in kids that when they're going through the rehab process and they re-enter, they might have that moment of, oop, I felt something. And they think they might have restrained it, but then you look at them and they they recover pretty quickly. It's like eh, this thing's just feeling pretty threatened. Your muscle spindle's pretty still pretty sensitive, so now you stretch too quick, that thing recoiled, and now it goes into a protective tightness pattern that maybe wasn't you know a strain or any you know any significant you know muscle fiber disruption. It's more of this you know callus still protecting itself. Um, so those are the things I'm thinking of. Of course, there's there's other differentials you can you can go through a million of them. Um, but those are the main things I'll typically see that that present like a like a hamstring strain. And again, with mechanism and location, it's it's 
generally a relatively easy um, diagnosis to make. But I would say, if the, with that being said, if things aren't falling into your typical hamstring strain presentation patterns, that's where you should be suspicious early and, and get secondary diagnostics if need be. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I love your point about bringing the lumbar spine into this as well, Anthony, because I think oftentimes we think of athletes and we think of like, you know, sports related injuries, and we don't often think like nerve related in nature. Um, So I love that you brought that up, especially because, you know, just a few months ago, um, I, for lack of a better way to put it, tweaked my lower back while I was doing a deadlift. And I felt stuff all the way down my left leg. My left hamstring strength went down. Uh, my left anterior tib strength went down. And it was crazy for me to just feel that difference on the left versus right side. Um, I can't say I'd ever felt like it, anything like it before. And that whole time, the thing going through the back of my mind was, what if I was trying to run and sprint right now? You know, what happens when I'm trying to sprint? And hey, one hamstring is nowhere near as strong as the other. There's delay in firing time. Things just don't feel normal. Um, And then you realize, oh, actually, that happens to athletes every single day. Maybe it's not a sciatic nerve-driven thing, but maybe it's a load management thing. Maybe it's, hey, you know, the athletes have been doing so much that things are not working as they were at the start of the season. Um, You know, there's a million different metrics you can track over time, whether that's just movement quality to a power metric or, you know, force plate data or whatever equipment you have access to. You know, I think there's so many different things we can track over time to see how their level of activity is impacting their muscle power and muscle performance. And I think that's something that we often forget is, you know, these different things that we think of with athletes can all have a drastic impact on how their muscles function on the day to day. And thus kind of predispose them more to, um, an injury like this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think that's one of the advantages of the world I work in. Cause I have the luxury of, of typically getting a, you know, a baseline or a daily touch point with an athlete. So it's something where, um, you'll know when something's a little bit different or of the course of the first couple of months of season, when you're working with an athlete, you'll start to learn how their body, the patterns of how they start to regulate and manage the stress of gameplay. So it's something where we can start seeing, hey, this is a normal pattern of stress for you. And then you can start see where things might start shifting outside of a homeostatic set point and injury patterns start occurring. So it's one of those things where we're doing our constant check-ins and, you know, um, we can start having indicators of, oh, this this might be different. This movement pattern is a little bit different. This presentation, this tone and this muscle is a little bit different. And we kind of have our check engine light. Um, to be, hey, we need to, you know, manage this and watch this and, and, and maybe make some decisions around uh, this issue at certain points um, as able to to decrease risk of injury um, for these things. So that's where, you know, you start getting into this thought of injury risk assessment. It's really about more about, you know, less about identifying individual risks and more about identifying injury patterns and, you know, ways that um, different variables or different constraints start interacting with each other um, within the devi- dynamic environment of their task. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And like you mentioned, that ability to assess daily is very uh, helpful uh, in kind of determining the overall change in status day to day. As you mentioned, you know, you've got the ability to do that every time you see an athlete. Now, say you're in the outpatient setting and you still want to implement something to assess on the day-to-day. 
Um, you know, I think Eric Degatti mentioned this in one of our past podcasts about how he kind of has like a 60 second movement screen he does when athletes uh, come in. And, you know, essentially his goal is to assess movement quality quick and dirty. Maybe he picks up on something, maybe he doesn't, but at least he's assessing it uh, as opposed to just kind of letting it go to the wayside. You know, if you could look at, you know, one or two things, quick 30, 60 second assessment when someone walks into your outpatient clinic, what one or two things would you want to look at in terms of the hamstring? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a little battery of, of test free tests with um, after post strain. Um, so things I'm looking at, you know, is I'm looking at a toe touch. I want to see how that's evolving just from a multi-segmental flexion standpoint. Um, I'll probably be looking at a multi-segmental, multi-segmental extension as well. Um, just to see how lumbar spines moving um, in both those directions from a flexion standpoint, how are they tolerating that forward motion and that that stretch? Um, I want to just a, a glimpse of sensorium there um, as well to see at what point do we are we no longer feeling a different side to side or no longer are we are we feeling um, when does it go from a specific location on the hamstring um, to more of a global type thing or does that go back and forth? Does that change day to day based off of uh, the loading they did in a previous day? Um, on the table, um, I'm checking, you know, hip rotation daily just to, just to see where that is compared to their baseline. I'm checking a straight leg raise. And I would say really the, the, the main test from a range of motion that I'm tracking is a max hip flexion, active knee extension test. Hmm. Um, so this is something where I'm taking them into full hip flexion. Um, and then they are actively straightening their knee. And then I'm, I'm measuring with a goni, uh, goniometer, their popliteal angle. I so, like yeah, and that's a really good indicator because that's something that you should um, progressively see increase over the course of uh, of your rehab process. But as you start getting into more intense work, you may see that come back a little bit. So you may see something where if I start introducing, you know, a different sprint drill or a little bit higher velocity, we might see a recoil the next day. And to me, that's saying, mm. or we might find it immediately. I usually check it immediately post session as well. So it's something where it's saying, oh that that muscle spinner response we're talking about again we may have sensitized that and now we're getting protective tightness so one of the biggest things you'll see with a with a hamstring um, post-injury and you, and you see this in the literature is that we end up <laughs> seeing less strength at length post-injury mm. so the angle of peak torque will shift to shorter and shorter angles of knee extension to where the hamstring is no longer comfortable producing force at longer lengths so the way I see that is then from a max effect knee extension, that thing just does not want to get in that longer position. It's resisting or having tone against that. So now just think if I'm putting them out of position and I'm passively trying to put them in that, or they're just actively trying to do that um, without any constituent of force or sprinting or velocity, do I really expect them to hit that, be able to hit those angles during our sprint drills later that day? I don't, I can't, I can't, we need to restore that first and make sure that's staying stable as I increase stress. So really for me, that's one of my, my biggest insights into how their, how their hamstring is managing and responding to the stress that we're imposing on it. I um, love that assessment that you just outlined, Anthony. And yeah. um, one of the big things I like about it is, as you mentioned, the ability to have strength at end range is essential, especially for the hamstring. And just thinking about you know, knee flexion, knee extension, if we don't have good hamstring strength, which is the only dynamic stabilizer that prevents excessive anterior tibial translation, if we don't have good strength of that at end range, 
which is knee extension or anterior tibial translation, I'd imagine nothing good could come from lack of strength in a extension uh, type position uh, like that. You know, I think I, my mind immediately goes to hyperextension and ACL type thing. Um, yeah. I, I like your uh, I like your assessment there with the goni. I like how that's easy enough to track it over time. I also like that you could kind of break it down active or passive, kind of like you mentioned as well. Yeah, yeah, um, and then and then moving moving on from the range of motion stuff, I do a quick strength check uh, most days as well. So um, we'll check, you know, on certain checkpoints on certain days, we'll check things with you know a tin deck or a Kanga tech or force frame, whatever way or a force plate, whatever way we can, we can actually look into the reproduction of force, but on a, on a daily, I will do a quick and dirty assessment um, where I will start them on their supine. They'll be around, I'll start with 90 degrees. I'll put my hands underneath their heels and have them bridge up into my hand. So I can feel weight distribution into my hand from there. They'll bridge up. I'll have them pick one leg up. So we're holding a single leg bridge. So I might start there and see what the difference is and see if, and see if it produces pain. If that doesn't produce pain, I'll move them out to about 30 degrees. So the outer range, we'll do the same thing at outer range from there. I will actually start adding a eccentric force um, to have them resist it to see how they can. And then I'll have them, I say, Hey, let me win. So I'm actually pulling them into the eccentric and watching that. So that's how that evolves to see. At, so I can see day to day at what point, at what level are you having pain or having clear cut weakness from side to side? So it's a nice, easy way to get a sense of just where they're at from a strength standpoint. If that changes from day to day, if they're more, if something's more provocative or if they are progressing from day to day. And again, like an eclectic setting where you're seeing somebody twice, um, twice a week, this is a really good insight into, you know, can I take a step forward in my progression state or do I need to stay where I, where I was? Yeah, um, no, definitely. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. From there, the assessments then become really if we start getting into, like, let's say a dynamic warm-up, um, I'm progressing my sprint or track drills um, in, a, in a progressive manner to kind of see, is there a certain force or velocity in which they start showing aberrant patterns or start showing avoidance? So we might be starting with a slow march. Uh, and then a skip, you know, from, you know, low knee to high knee, then a, then a low knee run to a high knee run. Is there a certain point where they're showing me, mm, they don't want to bring that hip up as high or they're avoiding something or they're short stepping. From there, if we start getting to like our acceleration patterns or some buildup runs, we can get a clear sense of, you know, either where they start to feel um, asymmetry or where they start showing clear signs of avoidance or having issues. Um, so from there, I think those assessments give you a, a clear sense for me of like, all right, now I know from a range of motion standpoint, how far can they get side to side? So where, at what level can I train them? And what can I expect from them there? From a strength standpoint, where are my progressions at? Am I at somewhere where I still need to be holding mid range isometrics? Can I go to outer lane isometric? Can I do that single leg? Should I stay double leg? Can I start introducing eccentric force? Because now I'm, I'm getting a quick and dirty assessment of if they're tolerating those, those things. And then through my, my, drill brought up, I get a sense of, you know, what's my warm up, and then what's my new stimulus that day? What's the edge of their ability? Um, and that becomes routine for us. So we're running through that no matter where they're on the phase, we're running through the same track drills. And we, you know, early in the phase, we might just stop at March, you know, or we might just start at a low knee, a low knee run, and that might become the training stimulus that day. But later on, it becomes, you know, the first part of their warm up. So these are things that you're getting multiple touch points with the athletes. So they have a reference to how that feels as a clinician. Your eye has a reference to how that looks. 
and the routine is a really powerful tool. And then later should actually become an audit for the individuals are getting back to sport because it's an easy way to check into where you are at and have understanding of, oh, did I regress? If I regress and I'm feeling it here, now we have a sense of where to pick up and where to start back again in the process. Yeah, I love that. It's almost like just layers to um, a cake, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Um, you know, your first layer is, hey, the range of motion. If we can't move through a full range of motion, then we're probably not ready to get super fancy with the plyos or uh, track drills or that sort of thing. I like your approach on the strength standpoint too. And I like how you're able to hit ISO load, eccentric load, um, and kind of get a little bit of every type of contraction through that assessment. And I really like your approach to the consistent uh, warm-up routine via track drills, because again, you can continue to layer more and more things on there. And that's something that you can repeat over time and kind of look for trends with, you know, if you have a 12 phase progression through your warm up routine. Um, you know, oh, by the way, that's your warm up routine. So that's an active part of your rehab. It's not like, you know, it's not like that's like, you know, a separate assessment or anything like that. Like that's your warm up. That's part of your plan of care. That's part of your rehab. And you can progress that over time. Um, and I like how that's going to give you visually, you can watch them do the same movements over time. Um, I love the iPhone camera and you can literally just record it every day and kind of look back uh, and notice trends over time. Um, I also like the fact that you can ask the athlete for feedback every day and it is so easy. Like it takes 10 seconds to get that feedback, get that information, and write it down. Yep. Um, especially when you have the template of what you're going to be doing in the warm up that day already put together. Yeah. Um, that's, the, that's the kind of warm up that I think gives a little bit more input to how the athlete is doing and trending a little bit more than say like, just, Hey, here's some band walks, go crush them uh, and call it a warm up or Hey, jump on a bike for five minutes and call it a warm up. Um, so I think that's far more specific in this case. For sure. And that's the big thing to understand is that these, these processes are agile, they're ever changing. And so what we need to make sure that our assessment process doesn't end on the table and isn't only reserved for like re reval days. Our assessments need to be daily and, and layered. So everything we're doing is intentional to 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 help us make a better decision um, for what to do that day and where the status of the athlete is um, in the big picture of the rehab process. And and to clean some of that framework up of that, really like the way I've sense make for this and the the way we really discuss it actually in our our, our RTP Academy uh, blueprints or foundations course is through asking a couple questions. That's number one, does the athlete have the requisite range of motion to do the task you're asking them to do? So in this hamstring situation, that's your straight leg raise, that's your hip flexion, that's your max hip flexion acting the extension test. Two, does the athlete have the ability to, to coordinate those movement options? So that's your toe touch. To me, that's your introductory track drills. That might be your deadlift pattern, your single leg deadlift pattern, your squat pattern, your split squat pattern. So can they take those movement options they have and coordinate them in simple movements? Three, can they produce force to the requisite demands of what you're asking them to do? So now as we start introducing elements of whether load, uh, whether it be through direct hamstring loading or through deadlifting or squatting or um, force or velocity in the sense of our track and track drills, can they manage that force? Is the body responding well to that? Do they have the requisite force producing capabilities in the musculature and the nervous system to manage that? Next, do they have the ability to handle the, the gradual load you've exposed them to? So we're thinking of the term of graded exposure. So now as we start layering these things on, how are they responding 
post-session? How are they responding 24, 48, you know, 72 hours after that session? So that's our load management piece. And then last question is, how are they, you know, how are they mentally handling this? Does their perception of where they are and how they're performing match up with how they are performing? Are they over-evaluating their function? Are they under-evaluating their function? And how can we help calibrate that? So I always come back to those six questions or principles when we are trying to sense make where we are in the process and really as the the shell of an evaluation from a day-to-day basis. Ultimately, I think that's what it comes back to. Like you said, having a framework and checking milestones throughout your rehab. Um, and while we could probably talk until we're blue in the face about very, you know, unique interventions we've developed for people, uh, I think it comes back to mastering the basics and having some kind of system to progress from one step to the next to the next. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, having adequate range of motion is essential. Um, having the pain controlled too is essential. I've seen it uh, a few times actually where, you know, a PT will try and progress someone into the really cool fancy stuff but they haven't even gotten the pain under control. And, you know, maybe the athlete can do it. Maybe they can't, but if it's given them seven, eight out of 10 pain, then you really got to ask yourself, what am I doing and why am I doing it here? Um, I, I truly believe in mastering the basics first. So pain control, range of motion, as you mentioned, strengthening, as you mentioned, there's so many different um, ways to load the hamstrings. I think it's essential, as you said, to hit, the different contraction types from ISO to eccentric to concentric and really paying attention to the angles like you talked about earlier that you're hitting at the knee and the hip for that matter uh, during those exercises because you know the specific adaptation to impose demand principle at the end of the day holds tried and true Um, you know if you're not loading someone at end range knee flexion or you're not loading someone uh, from a hamstring standpoint at end range knee extension then quite frankly you're not going you shouldn't be expecting significant changes or gains in that position if you're not even addressing it Um, and then as you mentioned to the incorporation of some of those higher level functional activities is essential for the athlete and the sporting population I can't tell you how many times I've seen athletes who have gone to PTs who have never progressed them off of a table or their progression off the table was, you know, the band walks or the step up, step down type thing. And, you know, while that works for some people, if your goal is to return to high level sport, you're going to need more than that. So uh, I completely echo your point in having a progression in place to make that happen being essential. Um, And ultimately, I think that kind of guides your return to sport process, as you mentioned as well there, Anthony. And you know, at least from my end, I definitely think that symmetry on hamstring strength is important for return to sport. Uh, I think a good hamstring quad ratio is uh, essential as well. And lately, I've been calculating that at different angles myself. I like I used to do just a 90 degree. Now I'm doing a 90 degree and a 60 degree. And I've even started to play around with testing at 90, 60 and 30 degrees uh, with a more of like a f- uh, objective force number uh, pound measurement type thing there. Um, so I've seen some value in that. I still really like, um, you know, the plyo testing. I know that single leg vertical jump, your hop tests, you know, I don't care which ones you like, whether it's single leg, triple hop, six meter time top, crossover hop. I still think there's value in running those numbers. Um, and even if you're not after it from an objective standpoint, running the athletes through a series of those tests and mastering the subjective and seeing how they feel as they go through them, 
what they notice themselves. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in that as well, because ultimately at the end of the day, if the athlete's telling you, hey, I'm not ready, I don't feel ready, I don't feel ready, regardless of what those numbers show, I'm going to say that they're right about their condition. 100%. And I think it's, I mean, the biggest thing and the biggest mistake I, I think people make here is just not actually pushing themselves to the the boundary of what needs to be done in sport. Like we mentioned, like post hamstring strain, that muscle is going to adapt at a shorter length. Okay. The fascicle length is, is going to change in that muscle unless we train it to the fascicle length to, to be longer. The muscle is going to be, sh- is going to be stronger at shorter lengths and get weaker at longer lengths unless we force it by training it to do that. And, and again, like even looking at strength testing, right? That is a great checkpoint or milestone along the process. But if I look at the max force that I can produce um, with a, you know, hamstring, you know, max isometric at 30 degrees, comparing that to the actual torques that are imposed at max velocity sprinting, it's like, it's not even close. You're not even halfway there. So really, unless we're stressing these things within, you know, progressive track drills and getting them up to max velocity sprinting, we're, we're not preparing them for, for the demands of what the sport's going to ask. And if you ask me, like, it's one of the biggest reasons why we see such a high re-injury rate. You know, research will say that up to 33% of these hamstring injuries will reoccur, which is a crazy high reoccurrence rate. And the majority of these will happen in the first 30 days post-injury. So to me, it's saying, you know, are we, are we rushing people back without exposing them to the demand? Are we pushing, are we actually taking our time to push them to the, to the level that they need to get back to in a controlled manner before throwing them back onto the field of play? And those are all, I think, all important questions to ask. Yeah. And ultimately, I think it comes back to the question of why at the end of the day, too. Um, and this is a game I've found that I'll play my kind of like mess with myself with during my rehab uh, and plan of care development is. You know, as I'm kind of planning out my exercise selection for the day or the assessments that I'm choosing, um, you know, I like to ask myself why, like, why am I choosing this over that? Why am I choosing, you know, a kickstand RDL versus a single leg RDL? Why am I choosing, um, you know, a bridge variation with the heel up on the bench instead of the heel on the floor? Um, And there's so many different layers to that. But ultimately, coming back to the question of why, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? does what you're doing have a valid action and purpose? Um, And does that align what you're doing? Does that align with what the athlete needs and wants to get back to? Uh, And at the end of the day, I think, you know, there's a million different ways to do it. But if you um, are, uh, if you're matching action and purpose and intent, then, you know, and your way works, uh, then there's no one who can tell you're doing the wrong thing. 100%. Anthony, as we start to wrap up here, you know, I feel like we've discussed so many different things relating from initial injury mechanism all the way up into, um, you know, return to sport and interventions that way. Do you have any kind of thoughts or remarks or anything that we might have missed so far in our discussion on the hamstring? I think just understanding, like we said, to reiterate that, like, if you've seen like a hamstring strain, it's not always a hamstring strain, right? It's it's they're they're different. Okay, they're going to present differently. So make sure that your initial diagnostics are good. Make sure if things are not progressing at the rate that you expect them to, then refer and and get imaging. There's been times where I was in the clinic where, you know, things start looking and, you know, not progressing like normal hamstring strain. And then boom, we're having a, you know, a more significant grade three or 
tenderness issue that needs a, that you need to reset a little bit for different time frame for. So if your if your diagnostics aren't clear and things are progressing well, make sure you're you're looking and gleaning more information. Um, next, I think depending on the demands of the sport, um, you need to remember that and remind an athlete that you're preparing the athlete not necessarily for the demand of one game or something that might happen in a game you might be preparing for the thing that might happen once every 10 games. So for instance, in, in basketball, um, you might go multiple games without hitting, you know, a high speed. So I would say like high speeds in basketball are something around, you know, 17, 18 miles per hour. So we might have games where no one breaks 15, 15 and a half. And then one game there's, you know, ball gets stolen, there's transition, there's a track back, someone's trying to pin somebody on the glass. And now they're hitting, you know, they're hitting 17 and a half, 18 miles per hour. And they may not have hit that at any point in the rehab process. They might have thought they felt great at 15, but now this once every 10 game, they hit that. So it's something important to remind um, your athletes that, hey, even though you feel great in practice, you feel good with the things that you feel like are 90% of your sport, I got to prepare you for that last 10%. And we may need to be patient on those on those things so that when you enter the field of play, you're prepared for whatever chaos might ensue. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Anthony. I love that. And as you were talking, I realized there's one thing I wanted to ask you that I had forgotten about. You mentioned multiple times about the importance of restoring rotation at the knee uh, and making sure we have good rotation motion. And that is something I almost never hear about. And you almost see it completely glossed over from, from an intervention side as well. You know, I don't see a lot of people doing things to restore uh, rotation range of motion at the knee. What kind of things do you like to go to for restoring range of motion in rotational movement at the knee? Yeah, it, I guess it just depends. It may not be necessarily that you need more rotation. It might be how you can, how you control that rotation, how the foot interacts with the ground. And then where is that position of, you know, the knee in relationship to the pelvis and the foot. So you have to look at the whole system, how that stuff's interacting. So I think a good example would be like, let's say, let's give an example of maybe an athlete who has um, deficient deceleration mechanics on a leg. So rather than just decelerating purely through like a, you know, anti-tibial translation, say they have a tendinopathy or a quad weakness, and now their deceleration strategy actually relies on turning the foot in. Okay, and, and, and doing that rather than just going straight into it. Yeah. So if you start seeing that mechanism now, if I'm turning that way, can you see how that might eccentrically orient the lateral hamstrings more so than if I stayed neutral? So now I start thinking about what stress is that imposing now from a deceleration standpoint on the biceps, femoris, long, and short heads. So yeah. it, may, it may be from a chronic loading standpoint, I, I may be having a aberrant pattern or you know a less than optimal deceleration strategy because of a constraint from a quad that's now leading to an overload in a hamstring. Maybe I have a hip rotation deficit that's causing me to orient the femur and the tibia in a certain way that's now creating those issues. So you got to look at the hamstrings, the way they attach um, to the to the tib and the fib is like kind of like the reins on a horse. So where that's going, if I don't have rotational stability or control or a bias one way, it's going to change that orientation of the muscle. So if it's jammed up and it needs mobility, maybe we need to do some, you know, whether it be training techniques to restore the ability for that to internal external rotate, maybe it's manual therapy, mobilization, soft tissue work, whatever your evaluation process indicates, but we need to be looking deeper than just straight sagittal, straight plane, hamstring, straight leg raise, strength, all that stuff. We need to look a little bit deeper and understand that these muscles are 
triplanar muscles and can can have forces imposed on them differently based off of um, those type of patterns or, or, or coordination. Right. And ultimately, it's going to lead to you getting a lot more specific and targeted in your in your interventions. Um, so I just think of, you know, an individual who comes in, has some issues like we've discussed, and you decide to go with scraping and you just kind of blast everything with the scraping. It's like, hey, maybe we could have like focused in on one more specific area that would have actually gotten us all the benefit without, you know, 15 minutes of scraping and we could have gotten it in five or something. Sure. So, um, you know, I definitely think that allows you to be more targeted and specific in what you're doing. I like that. Yeah, we kind of mentioned earlier that global assessment. I think understanding big picture, you know, who that athlete is, what strategies they use to move, and that's not either good or bad, you know, necessarily, but understanding how that strategy that they're choosing may constrain certain things or may put forces in certain areas that may change the way that certain muscles are interacting or certain, you know, stress strain patterns are imposed. So I think if we understand that, we understand the demands are going to be placed on that muscle and whether we, you know, if, if, or can we, we can adapt that. And if not, we need to make sure that we're stressing those patterns that they're, they're ready for what they're actually, the way they're actually going to organize once they get put into a chaotic environment. Anthony, for people who want to find out more about you or check out the uh, course that you mentioned a few times there, where can they find you at? Uh, you can find me at half court before a wizards game. If you come to come to see us on at home or on the road this year, uh, additionally online, um, Instagram, a Anarino three underscore DPT. And then you can find some of our, our work through RTP Academy at rtpacademy.com. Um, like I mentioned, we have some courses around the country that we'll be, we'll be teaching. Um, and then additionally, we have some online offerings foundations course, which is kind of our big framework course that goes over, you know, the, the principles, um, some of our processes and the phases of, of return to play. Um, which is a great primary uh, course. And then we have some secondary courses, like we said, mentioned the hamstring course and have some other, uh, an ACL course and have some other cool offerings coming out soon. So keep an eye on that stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. We'll link to all of that below in the description too here from, you know, your Instagram account to the R2P Academy and all that sort of thing. Really appreciate your time and it was great chatting with you today, Anthony. Always a pleasure. No, this is fun, Dan. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Hey everyone, I want to take a second and tell you all about AliRx. AliRx is a at-home food sensitivity and gut health testing panel. You order online and then receive and complete your test at home for food sensitivities. You then receive a custom report online through your member portal and then receive personalized recipes and supplements that are catered to you based on your food sensitivities. If this is something that interests you, you can check out the link and description in my bio and you can use the coupon code capital D, capital B, R-A-U-N, capital R-X, so D-B-R-A-U-N-R-X at checkout to save yourself 20%. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.